So today we're going to pick back up in Ephesians, but we're going to a new chapter, a new line of thought. So I'm excited about that. And we're going to address a topic that's plaguing, I would say, the Christian church right now, at least in America. So today's teaching is really to, to the church. Um, it's really to believers. It's to us. And I, I, I titled today's talk, uh, Christian Unity, colon, Christian Culture. This is important. Christian Culture versus Cancel Culture. So Christian Unity, Christian Culture versus Cancel Culture. This is Ephesians chapter 4 that we're coming into. And uh, let's read the text and then we'll, we'll jump into it. So the Word of God, and today we'll look at verses 1 through 6. The Word of God reads as, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, this is Paul talking to these Ephesians, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, which is meekness. I don't like that translation. With humility and meekness and patience are long-suffering, bearing with one another. And love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are mighty, Lord. We thank you for your word, God. Please illuminate your scriptures, God. Let this word jump off of not just the pages and enter my heart, God, but also my brothers and sisters here, Lord God. Oh, Lord, come alive, God. Bring them joy, Lord. Help them to see the seriousness of Christian unity, of unity among the brethren, Lord God. Make your, your word come and just swim in their mind throughout today and throughout the week, Lord. Help us to see your glory in your text, Lord Jesus. Oh, you are so good. Your word is so sweet. Let us taste more of it as we dig into it, God. This is our prayer and our hope in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so we're hitting Christian culture. I mean, uh, cancel culture. And I'll get to what that means. And, and I know this is, these are, these are, we're going to hit some stuff that may rub some folks the wrong way. But as you know, I... I kind of I don't want to shy away from preaching on issues that are plaguing the church. You know, in the past I've talked about justice issues, and um, to be frank, now in some churches, if you talk about justice issues, I'm listening to podcasts. You can get fired from your church, um, with the exception of abortion. That's one justice issue that people seem to be okay with. Um, but any other justice issue, people have problems. Um, I've talked about Black Lives Matter here at the church, right? We talked about racism. Um, and my point in always bringing out these topics are to show the Bible's perspective on the matter. Because if people are not looking to the Word of God for truth, then oftentimes they will turn generally to news networks and uh, political pundits for truth. And we know how that goes. So anytime I'm addressing an issue that's controversial, um, it's always to bring God's perspective to bear, His perspective on the matter. So today we are addressing Christian cancel culture. And yes, Paul addresses cancel culture in the opening chapter of Ephesians chapter 4. Um, for some of you who don't know what cancel culture is, um, many of you know what it is, but uh, we're living in a time that people 
categorize as the cancel culture time. And what that cancel culture is, when you say something in the present or in the past that goes against popular opinion, the culture generally cancels you by either getting you fired from your job, um, causing you to resign. If you're a celebrity, you will lose endorsements. Um, so you could be 50, 60 years old, and maybe you said something when you were 14, and that remark surfaces, uh, the culture will cancel you. You get kicked out of organizations, you can lose your livelihood. That's cancel culture, and that's a lot going on right now and in, in, in just in the world. Um, but Christians have their own form of cancel culture as well. If you don't go along generally with the status quo of the majority Christian opinion, if you're an artist, for example, you can lose support. You can lose speaking engagements. Some pastors, again, are getting kicked out of the church or being forced to resign. And when, when I hear such things about how we as Christians are acting and being a part of this cancel culture, it makes me wonder if the church has forgot about Ephesians 4, chapter 4, 1 through 6. The other day, I, I, was, I was so tempted to even post Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 6 on Facebook and with the message, Christians, please read this. And I say that because in Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 6, Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 6 is a cancel, is an anti-cancel culture message. Because in this text, Paul, he stresses the importance of our Christian walk and our Christian way of life. And he stresses the importance of Christian unity. And in these verses of scripture, Paul talks about how we are to uh, love one another. He talks about how we as Christians are to have patience with one another. He talks about how we as Christians are to walk in humility towards one another, how we are to be meek towards one another. So Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is needed for our time because we are so fractured as a Christian church from political identities that seem to trump our Christian identities to our response to COVID. Christians in America are splitting over to wear a mask or not. Christians right now in America are splitting over social distancing. Church, this is a wiffle bat. And I'm sorry because I'm really passionate about church unity. And so this is really a topic that gets me going. But church, that is a wiffle bat. We are getting hit with a wiffle bat and we are actually breaking and fracturing. We're not being hit with a Louisville slugger, which would be physical persecution. I think about Satan. Satan, how are you going to go and divide the church in America? I'm going to use a mask. And I'm going to use social distancing. And I'm going to use politicians. And I'm going to have Christians fight one another and get out of character over justice issues. See, that is a wiffle bat. But the antidote to thwart Satan's scheme is right here in the text. It's in these six verses. Where here in these verses, the apostle, he lays out the motivation for godly living in these verses. He shows us who should be the early beneficiary or recipients of your godly living in these verses. And then he shows us the priority of unity in the church. That's what he does in these six verses here. So again, in chapter 4, Paul is he's making a switch in his line of thought. He's going from verse chapters 1 through 3, he's going from explaining doctrine or orthodoxy 
to the practical or orthopraxy. So we are going from a right way of thinking and a right way of believing to a right way of living and a right way of doing. That's what Paul is doing here in chapter four. He's transitioning his thought from doctrine or right belief the cognitive, if you will, to the right action. What, the, what this doctrine should do, he's showing now, because of what you just read in chapters one through three, you should now be living this way. So it's going from this doctrine to now to action. And so Paul's transition to the practical, to the doing, it also tells us this. It tells us that you, church, you believer, you cannot stay in your mind all day. You cannot live in the abstract. You cannot just sit in your room all day and just read scripture after scripture and just watch YouTube sermon after YouTube sermon and book after book. Eventually you have to get up, get out of your room and begin to live out your faith. I heard a, a preacher once say that you can't stay on the mountaintop forever. You actually got to leave the mountaintop. You got to go back down into the city and you got to deal with the daily problems of life. But I know we love the mountaintop, right? We love being in our room by ourselves when with the right temperature, we had air conditioning and having our coffee and just sitting there and reading God's word and getting great revelation and having sweet communion. But guess what? You have to eventually get up leave your room and you have to take that mountaintop experience of you having a great understanding and revelation of God and you have to bring that mountaintop experience down to the city and to your daily life. Can't just study scripture all day. We can't just think and philosophize all day and come up with different arguments all day. We actually got to take what we have learned and go and live it. Now, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 3 that there is a time and a place for everything, essentially, right? So there can be a time, especially in your early on in your Christian walk, where you need to just sit down and soak in a, the Word of God, right? There is a time or a place. Uh, for example, it, you hear many Christians in prison and jail say that um, they needed that time of isolation. I've heard many Christians and inmates say that they, that they needed that time of isolation where they can do nothing else but read and soak in the word of God. So, so I'm not telling you to not study your scripture. I hope you know that. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there comes a time, there comes a point where you have to leave your study, you have to leave your seminary, you have to leave your Bible class and begin to live out what you have been studying. And so for Paul here in Ephesians 4, he, he begins to use the strange, strongest language here to, to plead for these Ephesians and Christians alike to live out their faith. So he says in verse 1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I love it. Paul is using his status as a prisoner to help encourage and exhort these Ephesians to live out their call. 
And what I love again about what Paul does, he, he takes this term that the world seen as derogatory, right? Calling yourself a prisoner and he flips it on his head and he turns it as an honor. He's saying that I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus, that Jesus has come and he has apprehended me and he, he controls my freedom. He controls my action. He controls what I'm doing. I am a prisoner of the Lord. It, it kind of reminds me of the 1960s and the 70s with the term Jesus freak, right? Um, and the world used to call Christians Jesus freak and they were saying it in, in a pejorative sense. They were making fun of them but over time Christians began to adopt that term and we started saying yes I'm a Jesus freak. Yes I'm fanatical about Jesus and so that's what Paul is doing here with prisoner. Yes just the world sees prisoner as bad but he says I'm a prisoner of the Lord because he's physically in prison right now but he's also saying that Jesus has, has, has apprehended him and he's a prisoner of the Lord and that Jesus controls his life. He has him. And so he says, on account of this and what I've just preached, he says, I urge you, Ephesians, I urge you not to just study and think all day, not to just philosophize and argue, but I'm urging you to walk, in, which in the Bible means to live out godly living, righteous living, to walk worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this word that he uses, urge, is also in other places used um, as beg. So Paul is begging, or if you're reading the King James Version, it's to beseech, right? I beseech you, brethren, right? As we see in Romans 12:1. So Paul is, he's begging and he's urging in deep language for these Ephesians not to just be stuck in their head with doctrine and scripture, but to actually go out and live a life worthy of uh, the call live a life worthy of the call. See, the apostle, he understands the importance of the Christian call. See, the apostle Paul, he understands that the Christian calling is a high calling, a calling that is worthy of honor. See, this term Christian that we are identified with Christ is not some lackluster identity that we just lug around and don't put much stock into, but no, it is a great honor to be a follower of Jesus. For example, have you, have you ever talked to a Marine, right? Have you ever talked to a Marine that's just love being a Marine? They tell you, oh yeah, I'm a Marine. They, they, they say it with such honor and with, with such dignity. They see, because they, they see being a Marine as a high calling. So they are proud, oh yeah, I was a Marine. I served here and there. Marines love being Marines and they'll tell you that they are a Marine. Why? Because they see this calling as a, as a high calling in their mind of being a, a soldier. But church, we as Christians, we have an even higher calling. See, this Christian calling that Paul is talking about is God summoning, summoning us to himself. That's the calling. See, early on in chapter 1, we, we were told in chapter 1 that, that we as Christians, that we were chose from the foundation of the world, verse 4. Then we were told also in that same chapter that we have been predestined for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Meaning that you, my brother in Christ, guess what? You are a son of God and you, my sister in Christ, you are a daughter of God. See, that is such a big term, church. That I am, if you're a male, I am a son of God, not the son of God, but a son of God. And as a woman, I am a daughter of God. That is a big deal. That has to come alive to you. Just like what Sister Debbie said about God loving me, loving me, it has to come alive to you. Like, this is my identity. I am God's daughter. I am God's son. 
See, I, I think about this retired boxer. This retired boxer, his name is Andre Ward. And you know how boxers have their boxing name, right? I think I shared with this uh, with you before. Um, the boxers have their boxing name. And like you have Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson's boxing name is Iron Mike Tyson, right? And uh, Holyfield, his boxing name is um, uh, e Evander, the real deal, Holyfield, right? The real deal, that's what you call Holyfield. But do you know what Andre Wards, who's a Christian, do you know what his boxing name is? S-O-G. That's his boxing name. His boxing name is S-O-G. You know what that stands for? Son of God. He is so enamored, so just wow that he is God's son, that that's his boxing name, S-O-G. And so when he wins a fight, you hear all the crowd going, S-O-G, S-O-G, why? And he said, I'm a son of God. And he's like, I want everybody to know that I'm a son of God. See, it has clicked to him. God has made that real to him that he is God's child and that God is truly his father, that he's now truly in a new family. He's left his old earthly family and moved to this heavenly family where, where God is truly his father. So he, he's wowed by that. And so Paul tells us in chapter one that we are, sorry, have been predestined to adoption as sons and daughters. That's a big deal. And then Paul next tells us that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and have become God's purchased possessions. And then in chapter 2 he goes and says that we are fellow citizens with the saints and guess what? Members of God's household. See, this is the calling. This is what God has called you to. And so Paul's response is, Ephesians, Christians, you need to live worthy of this calling. You are now God's children. You are now God's purchased possession. He has redeemed you. He has put his Holy Spirit inside of you. He, he, has, he has chosen you from the foundation of the world. You have to walk worthy of this holy calling, this, this holy hope that you have in Jesus. You have to actually live a life that, that matches this, so to speak. He said, you must live a life worthy of the calling. Now, what I'm so thankful for in, in Paul's text here is the motivation of the calling. I love that he, he shows us here in this text what the actual motivation of this calling is. See, the, the motivation that we see here in the text the motivation for living a godly life, for, for walking worthy of your calling is not what generally what we think it is, right? We, we think that I am called to live worthy of this calling and to, and to live a holy and righteous life so that people will see my light and ultimately come to God. And so we think I must live a good life ultimately for it, the sake of evangelism. And that is true. That is something that Jesus tells us to do, that we ought to let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. So we do live a godly and righteous life to see people come to faith, that is truly one of our motivations. But here in the text today, Paul gives us a different motivation or order for living a godly life and why we ought to live a life holy and worthy unto God. And that motivation is the call itself. It's the call itself. See, the, the first order reason that Christians should live in, in a, a godly and righteous life is not 
to convert, but really to show gratitude that God, you have chosen me. You have made me your own. You have made me a member of your household. So now I just want to walk worthy of this call. God, you have given me a new identity. You have put me in a new family. And so because of just your call, your summoning of me, you have selected me. That is reason for me wanting to live a worthy and holy life in your eyes. See, that's the first order here. Our first order, our first audience for living a godly life, for walking worthy, guess what? It's not the world, but it's for an audience of one, which is God. That the Lord has called me, and I want to walk worthy of His call. His call. That's our first order of responsibility. Yes, I want to convert, but I want to walk worthy of His call. He's the one that called me. And so it's the call itself. It's God summoning me himself. The Lord choosing me and coming down and giving me life himself. That is my motivation, firstly, of why I want to walk worthy of, this, of, uh, of a godly life or to live uprightly. So why do I help my neighbor, help someone in need? Yes, I want to see them come to the Lord if they're an unbeliever. But before that, I know the call of God demands that I help them. Why? Because from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Bible tells me what my disposition should be towards those who are in need or those who are poor or the orphan or the widow. Even if they're converted or not, I know the Bible's perspective. So it's God first. So our motivation for a worthy walk is the call of God himself. That's first point. That's the motivation. Now, next with this, this call... Paul gives us, he identifies three uh, characteristics that should fill up our life as we live a life for God. And in this, he, those three characteristics are humility, which you have been called. He says, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, with all gentleness, which is really in the Greek, meekness, and with patience. Patience. So he's saying one you ought to walk worthy of your call in humility, meaning you have to have a humble opinion of yourself. And he says to walk in meekness, meaning you ought to have power under control. Or the, see, see, meekness is when I have the power, the ability to do something, but for the sake of others, I don't even act, even though I have the rights and the power to actually do it. So he says you must walk in meekness. And then he says you must walk with patience which is really a better translation of this word is long-suffering because long-suffering involves somebody doing something wrong to you. You're being afflicted and yet you're not responding for the sake of others. So these are the three characteristics that he's saying that should associate this worthy walk that we have. Humility, meekness, and patience are long-suffering. Now think about these three characteristics. These three characteristics, guess what? They are characteristics that you have to live in community. See, if you are living on an island by yourself, guess what? There's really no one to display your humility towards. If you're living on an island by yourself, guess what? There's no one to be meek towards. If you are living on an island by yourself, there's no one to show patience and long-suffering. See, you, you need other people, other humans around to the, display these characteristics. Now, with this characteristic meekness that he says here, which is gentleness in many translations, this is one of the traits that we find in the Beatitudes, right? This is Matthew 5, 5. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he says, Blessed are the meek, right? For they shall inherit the earth. Now, from this teaching that Jesus gives us, 
we learn that meekness is to be displayed towards all humanity, all people. Jesus makes no qualifiers here. And I would say that's the same thing with these other traits of patience and humility. Patience and humility or meekness is to be shown towards all. But when Paul is writing chapter 4 of Ephesians, particularly with verses 1 through 16, Paul here has a particular group of people in mind. See, the theme of verse 1 through 16 is the unity of the church. And so when he's exhorting the Ephesians to walk in humility and meekness and patience, he has in mind the church. See, brothers and sisters, in the faith, or let me say this again. Um, brothers and sisters, what, I, what I'm trying to say is this. Your brother or sister in Christ, guess what? They should be the first one. They should be one of the first recipients or beneficiaries of your worthy walk, of your humility, of your meekness, of your patience. While all people in the world should experience all of these traits for you, there is a priority group that should be among the first. And again, they are not your blood relatives. They're not people from your own political party or ideology. They're not people from your culture and ethnicity, but they are people who have been washed in the same blood of Jesus, just like you. See, that is the priority. And, and that is what Paul is emphasizing here in chapter four. It's the unity of the church. It's the response of other believers to other believers. And so Paul, naturally flowing from humility and meekness and patience, he begins to exhort these Ephesians to bear with one another in love and to strive to keep the unity of the Spirit with peace among the brethren being the final outcome. See, that's his, that's his ultimate concern that he's getting at. This humility that he's calling for us to live, that this patience, this meekness that he's calling for us to show, he said this is something that has to be displayed um, priority-wise to the body of Christ. That is, these are the people who should be the, one of the first recipients of your worthy walk, of these characteristics that Paul is identifying here. It's not the world. Yes, we want to show it to the world, but some of the first people should, that should experience your new life and how you're treating folks is the people in the body of Jesus. It's other Christians. And in my opinion, this is one of the greatest failures of the church today because we have forgot how to bear with one another. We don't take the unity of the church as serious as the apostle did. The apostle was so serious about the oneness of the church. Do you know what he does after telling these Ephesians to strive for unity? What he does is this. In verses 4 through 6, these three verses, you know what the apostle does? He mentions the word one seven times in three verses from 4 to 6. One, 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 one. That's what he does. Ephesians, there's one body. Ephesians, you are of one spirit. Ephesians, you are called to one hope. Ephesians, there's one Lord. Ephesians, there's one faith. Ephesians, there's one baptism. Ephesians, there's one God and Father of all. You are one, so bear with one another. That, do you see what he's getting at here? He's pointing to the essentials of the faith to show why we ought to live in unity with one another. One. Paul is stuck on one. He goes on a oneness rant. Why? Because he takes the unity of the church serious, just like the psalmist did in Psalms 133, where he talks about how the, the unity is like the Holy Spirit, as Pastor Brian said. The unity is like that oil that ran down the beard of Aaron. Why? Because unity is serious. It matters that the body of Christ are one. And so Paul goes and he 
this oneness rent. That's why we must bear with one another. Do you know what it means to bear something? What Paul means here when he says bearing with one another in love? Do you know what that means? It means to hold something up like support. So if I'm holding my brother up like this, guess what I'm doing? I'm taking a posture, a physical posture of humility because I am lifting him up. I'm saying you are bigger, you're greater than I. I'm lowering myself and I'm lifting him up. And while I'm holding them, I'm showing patience at the same time. See, that is the posture of bearing one another. That's what that means. I'm going to put up with some of your stuff, even though I may not agree with you, brother and sister, even though I think you may be an heir. But because of these essential unities that we have, this, this oneness of the faith, I'm going to put up with you. I'm going to bear with you. I'm going to show patience with you in hopes that in the future we will come to an agreement on a matter. See, I'm I'm going to walk with you through this process, even though you may not fully get it, even though we are in disagreement. I'm going to have patience with you. See, that, that's what bearing one another is. I'm going to show meekness towards you. I'm not going to just call you out on everything you do wrong. Why? Because me calling you out could hurt you and even stop the process of you growing. Now, there's a time and a place where, yes, we must call out our brother or sister, but then there are times when, guess what? You need to show meekness. Yes, you're right. Yes, you may have the truth, but you don't got to voice it and let it be known. Sometimes you got to just step back and just show meekness and be patient with a brother or sister and, and let them grow. You don't always got to be the one correcting and being the, the morality police and calling out every We have to step back sometimes and show meekness to our brothers and our sisters. When I'm before I came to the bridge, I was at a church, and I had left that church, started doing ministry at my house, um, and just looking back over my life, I realized that, especially early on in my Christian walk, um, I could have said things better. I realized, man, I was spiritually immature not saying that I've arrived now that's not at all what I'm saying but I like man I was spiritually immature you know how when you're an early believer <laughs> and you get some some teaching in you right you go you take a few Bible classes and you think you know it all all because you know a little bit of Greek here and a little Hebrew and so now you think you could tell everybody and and, and I realized man Jerome I wasn't mature as I thought um, man Jerome you could have said this thing a little bit better um, and I'm telling you all this because uh, a few years ago, we haven't done it in a while, but I would meet with the pastor of my former church, even while I was going to the bridge. Yeah, we would meet out for breakfast at McDonald's. He loves McDonald's. So we meet up, he have his McDonald's. And in those meetings, a lot of it was me confessing <laughs> that I was wrong. I could have said this better. I realized a lot of stuff that he said at the time, he was right about. This guy, I'm, is now I'm realizing one of the most wisest guys that I know. But you know what he did with me? He had patience with me. See, he, he, he could have like, in the midst of my immaturity in some ways, in some matters, he could have just thrown me out. But he had patience with me. And it was patience over years when I came back. He showed patience. And that's what we have to do sometimes, even with brothers or sisters in the faith who maybe we have a relationship and now that relationship is broken. Or even sometimes when a brother or sister may even leave a church 
we have to understand that we're all on this journey. We're all growing at different paces. And if they are wrong, we have to have patience and hopefully they'll come to see their error in, in those cases. Um, but again, we, we have to step back and have patience with people. We can't um, throw them away. See, this is the opposite of cancel culture. That's why I say Christian culture versus cancel culture. Cancel culture, the world now, there is no forgiveness. You're just done if you make one mistake. But Christian culture says, no, I'm going to bear with you. So Paul is telling these Ephesians to bear with one another, to have humility towards one another, to have meekness towards one another. See, that's Christian culture. Cancel culture is to say that I'm just going to throw you away as soon as you do one little thing. And sadly, this cancel culture has crept into the church where a Christian sees you and you guys disagree on the matter. You voted differently. You supported a cause that they weren't for. And we cancel them immediately. Some Christians will even go far as to say that they're not even a Christian anymore. We'll, and, and we'll even begin to engage in name calling. On one side, you have people who some there on the right, they'll begin to engage in name calling and calling other Christians liberals and cultural Marxists. That's the favorite derogatory term of those on the right. Um, on the left, particularly if you're white, they'll say you're a racist. They'll call you a white supremacist. But where's the humility that Paul is talking about here? Where's the meekness? Where's the patience? Where's the bearing of one another? We can't just cancel one another believers when we do this we are not gathering around the essentials of our unity and that's what Paul lays out here in verse 4 to 6 in verse 4 to 6 Paul is laying out the essentials of our unity that there is one body right we're all of the same one body and that there is one spirit there's one Holy Spirit working in all and through all and that we all have this one hope. We're all hoping and waiting for Jesus. We're waiting for the kingdom of God to come in fullness. We're all looking to this one Lord and this one faith and there's one baptism into Christ and there's one God. See, Paul lays out the essentials there. That is the things that we rally around. That is where our unity is found. It's found in this oneness of the body of Christ, this oneness of the spirit, this oneness in baptism, this oneness of God, this, this, this oneness of the hope. That is where our unity is found. And so that's where Paul is encouraging the Ephesians here to look to. So brothers and sisters, let's not be quick to cancel one another. But as Paul says, we ought to not cancel, but we ought to be striving, he says in this text striving that means actively doing something I'm pushing against what the world is throwing at me I'm striving for this unity of the faith to keep the peace amongst the brethren that's that's what we ought to be doing because right now in the world there's so many things crawling crawling and trying to tear us apart and cause disunity but they have nothing to do with the essentials of our unity here that Paul lays out in verses 4 through 6 so I'm encouraging us, believers, to walk worthy of the calling. Not for just the sake of other people, but for the sake of God who has called you. You firstly have an audience of one, which is God. And we walk worthy of our calling, again, in humility. A low opinion of yourself, not thinking so high and mighty of yourself, not thinking you know it all, but humble yourself. Meekness. 
having that meekness towards my brother or sister. Not going and just bashing them, even though I could say this matter, even though I know, no, I'm going to step back and show meekness towards my brother and sister. And not just go exercise my power and authority. And lastly, showing patience, long suffering, putting up with one another. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm not just talking about here at the bridge. I'm talking about universal, the Catholic in the universal sense, universal church. We have to bear with one another as Paul is encouraging these Ephesians. So let's live out this calling, following what Paul is telling us here to do, walking holy in this manner. Let us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your goodness, Lord. To thank you for this heavenly call, Lord God. We just want to walk worthy of it because you called us, Lord. You have summoned us and made us yours. So we thank you, Lord. But God, we need your Holy Spirit. We can't walk worthy without your Holy Spirit, God. Your Holy Spirit is what empowers us. So dwell in us mightily, Lord. God, help us to love one another, to bear with one another, be, to be eager to strive for unity, Lord God. Keeping our mind and our focus on the things that are essential, Lord. We praise your name, Lord. We give you glory. In Jesus' name we come to you, Father. Amen.